you do start with self-serve, you have the benefit of being able to move up market, that's an option to you, and you can keep your discipline to have the self-serve always there, and it protects you on the downside. It's hard for someone to come in and disrupt you from below if you start on the self-side and then go enterprise. Uh, the downside of going self-serve is that oftentimes it takes a little bit longer to get going, and you need a lot more customers. Like We've got 6,000 customers, and that's a lot. It's fantastic. Uh, and it's taken us a while to get there, but things tend to accelerate once you get to a certain level. Welcome to 14 Minutes of SaaS, the show where you can listen to the stories and opinions of founders of the world's most remarkable SaaS scale-ups. The final part of a three-part mini-series with Russ Heddleston, CEO and co-founder of DocSend. Russ discusses the pros and cons of San Francisco as a startup city, shares his thoughts on opening an office abroad, and the advantages and disadvantages of targeting small customers initially in a B2B SaaS world, and also talks about whether financial stability really counts before an entrepreneur jumps into a startup. It's, uh, it's, it's very expensive to, to live and, uh, in, in San Francisco and to build a, a team. It's a great place for a VC investment. And, and you know, what sort of a challenge do you find there in such a competitive environment, trying to find uh, and, 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 and cost-effectively build teams in that city? Well, if your goal is to cost-effectively build a team, I think that you might want to move. Because <laughs> <laughs> it is an expensive city. Um, I often joke with people that San Francisco is really just a competition of business models. You have to be a really successful company to be able to be based there. And more and more businesses are, you know, like Gusto, um, they have an office in Denver and an office in San Francisco, and that's a nice way to kind of split the difference between the two. Uh, so there's the cost element, there's also just the competitive labor market side of it, and you just have to have a really strong culture. Like, you have to... It's a bunch of little things where you know you don't want to have jerks on your team. Like you don't want to have people who are rock stars but make it a bad culture for everyone else. Like that's just not worth it. Yeah. People have to enjoy coming into work. You need to invest in your people. Um, and if you don't prioritize that early, it can be hard to come back for them later. Um, and I think that you know that as a necessity is actually great uh, for San Francisco as a place to work because the companies that can survive and stay there, it's so expensive and you want to keep your people and it's a competitive market, so you need to be a pretty awesome place to work. Uh, and so I've found that as a trend that's it's quite encouraging um, and, and really contributes to it being a, a wonderful environment to work in uh, if your business can afford to continue operations there. You're, you're, you've got a lot of traction and you've got clear product market fit and you're, you're, you're perfecting all the time how you're going to market and your, and your product. Um, have you internationalized yet or, or are you planning to expand internationally? Well, that's a great and apt question. Um, we were recently looking at some of our numbers and as I mentioned, you know, most of our revenue is inbound and most of it is still self-serve. Uh, we noticed that conversion rates in other countries are much lower, which makes sense because we're asking them to pay in dollars and it's all in English. But we can't control where people are if they want to use Dachshund. Our value proposition is definitely quite universal. Um, it's also interesting that if you get a Dachshund link and the deck inside happens to be in Japanese, 
like the interface on the viewer side is just a bunch of icons. So, and it's a logo that you can swap out and then it's the content. So it kind of already looks like it's internationalized. So the, the thing we're going to do first is just let people pay us in their local currencies. And I expect that'll drive up conversions internationally a lot higher. Um, and yeah, we, we need to, you know, invest invest more in, in continuing to do uh, inter internationalization piece by piece. Have you got offices abroad yet? Or we, we don't have any offices abroad. Do you plan to? Um, yeah, would love to at some point. Um, it's not it's not clear. Uh, oftentimes, companies will have an office abroad either to reduce cost or if they have like a field sales team and they need to have feet on the street in those locations. Um, so we'll need to have an international office. Um, but yeah, not definitely not not this year. And we actually have a lot of customers in Asia and Europe and South America, and, and they're able to find and use Doxen without us needing to have an office there. Some things like GDPR we have to support, and because people send Doxen links globally, we need to be internationalized in the sense of knowing what regulations are out there and how we are compliant. Um, and so that's you know unavoidable. But so you know, um, but are you selling into? I know you've got a lot of small and medium-sized customers. Uh -huh. Are have you got a bit of traction in the enterprise, large enterprise space? Um, well, this year we've actually got some enterprise interest, and those deals uh, take a lot longer. Um, they're not all in the U.S. Uh, they are in other countries, and so we're going to need to do some travel. Oddly enough, they've traveled to us so far, or when wow. they're here, we'll have those conversations. Uh, and it, you know, the, the size that we're at, we've been very upfront with people. Like, you know, if you're going to pick docs, and it's it's because of these properties and usability, there are probably some like very enterprising features we're missing, and we're going to work with you on those. But you got to want it and work with us on that. And like, those are the conversations we're having there. We've been pretty thoughtful about how we've gone from like self-serve to SMB up into mid-market. And so then we can keep the experience clean and intuitive and useful as we kind of pepper in uh, more enterprise-y feature sets that we know we're gonna need to have. Um, and so, yeah, we haven't made it an intentional outbound enterprise model yet, but when people come to us, we're happy to work with them to figure out how they can give us more, more money. <laughs> I definitely think it's better to start with small business and work your way up into the mid-market. Uh, in terms of product development, you have a better chance to get closer to your, to, to uh, get closer to customers, to keep it sim a little bit simpler and to, and to hone better. Do you think it's better to go that way rather than to try and enter the enterprise world early? Well, there are companies that have gone in both directions and been successful, and there are companies that have gone in both directions and failed. And so yeah, yeah, usually yeah. if you ask someone what they would recommend if they did what if their strategy was successful they'd say do what i did if their strategy failed they'd say don't do what i did yeah. um i think that uh a good view on this is from gokul rajaram who was my uh, boss at facebook and he's one of our investors and he uh is, is senior on the product side at square now he had a blog post talking about how he thinks you should always start with self-serve okay. and there he has a good point uh that as soon as you go enterprise, it's very hard to go back to do self-serve, and it's very hard to have the discipline to try to move down market. Um, and if you do start with self-serve, you have the benefit of being able to move up market, that's the option to you, and you can keep your discipline to have the self-serve always there, and it protects you on the downside. It's hard for someone to come in and disrupt you from below if you start on the self-side and then go enterprise. 
Uh, the downside of going self-serve is that oftentimes it takes a little bit longer to get going and you need a lot more customers. Like we've got 6,000 customers and that's a lot. It's fantastic. Uh, and it's taken us a while to get there, but things tend to accelerate once you get to a certain level. Uh, and so I'm happy with the, the path that we've taken. What drives you personally? Um, what's, when you get up in the morning, what's your ikigai or your reason to, to be underneath all of this? What drives you, Russ? Uh, you know, people. Uh, you know, so it's nice. My sisters live in San Francisco as well. I get to hang out with them quite a bit. Uh, my fiance Kate is awesome, and it's fun to live in San Francisco with her. Uh, a lot of what drives me on Dachshund is just the people we have on the team. Like we've invested a lot in them. Like Dachshund is only successful because of the people we brought on board and how hard they work and how smart they are. And so you know, I really don't want to let them down. I want to make sure I'm doing my part and chipping in and making sure that we're delivering on our shared vision. Um, and you just, I just get such a kick out of like having having a team like that that's working behind Docs, and it's very humbling to think that you know we had an idea, we got people to agree, it's going well, and they're like working really hard to make it make the dream a reality. You, you do seem quite humble, and you're definitely not a control freak. You're a delegator. <laughs> um, what would you say would be the one personal quality that has been the most important part of you uh, that's led to your success? Um, it could be humility or optimism. Um, I, I, I might get, probably go with the, the ability to continue to be open-minded um, because, you know, a good, good other analogy is with the junior salespeople because we have a sales team now. I've tried to coach them through like not being too nervous about failing because it allows you to be more honest with yourself and to see like what is or isn't going to happen there. Uh, and, and so then you end up like making smarter decisions. And, and so if you're open-minded and able to see both sides of something, um, you, you can make the smart decision and you don't let uh, uncertainty or fear or insecurity like drive how you make decisions. So I think for me, I always try to take a step back and consider both sides of things. And like for instance, with Pursuit, like we ran it for a year, we raised seed funding, and we decided not to keep going. We didn't even use, we didn't spend any of our seed money. But you know, we like looked at both sides of things and we said, we, we think that this was a nice idea in theory, but in practice, the evidence we have says that we should probably not continue forward on this, which is a hard decision to come to. But I'm personally very happy that we didn't continue on with it and I got to have a really wonderful experience at Facebook instead. And that takes a massive amount of discipline to, uh, to make that decision. There's an awful lot of entrepreneurs that will, you know, uh, crush themselves against the wall to uh, to keep trying to make the thing work and, and, and not step back given that you actually had funds that must that's an amazing decision to take if you were to give one piece of advice to entrepreneurs that are up and coming what's that what's the one thing you'd say to them um, it depends on if they're someone who's actively starting a company versus someone who would like to start a company at some point in time in the future if it's someone who is like to spend start a company at some point in time in the future, I'd say the most like, common impactful piece of advice I've given to people is make sure you have enough personal wealth so that you're not stressed about both personal money and company money. And that's something that people really don't think enough about. Like the time is now, I've got to go do it. And if you're picking a co-founder, a lot of co-founder relationships get destroyed by money or because one person doesn't have money, the other person does have money and someone person wants to take it off, the other one doesn't or they're really worried about their personal financial, finances. It, it just brings out the worst in people. So, I mean, a good like rule of thumb might be if you've got a co-founder or two, you all put in 100,000 bucks 
not in like savings. It's just money that you're okay throwing away. And if you, if you can't do that, if you can't put enough money that you're all going to be able to work for a year on the thing, you probably don't have the personal runway required to give yourself enough time to get it off the ground. And it's just a very slim margin in prayer. Um, and, and so that's, anyway, that's, that's just one piece of advice I would give. I don't know what the right number is. Maybe it's less, maybe it's more, but making sure everyone's on similar financial footing and you're able to lose some money and not get too stressed about it, I think is important. Uh, check those boxes before you start a company. That's incredible advice. Russ Heddleston, uh, thank you so much for giving your time to 14 Minutes of SaaS. Appreciate yeah, thank it. you, Stephen. Next week, we start another three-part mini-series, this time with Ireland's Andrew Mullaney, former CTO and co-founder of Newswhip, a service that tracks how billions of people engage with stories. You've been listening to 14 Minutes of SaaS. Thank you to Ketsu for music provided under a Creative Commons license. This episode was brought to you by me, Stephen Cummins. If you enjoyed the podcast, please don't forget to share it with your network, subscribe to the series, and give the show a rating.